Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. The text is also there on the next page in the bulletin for you. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Uh, it's a big section that uh, includes Jesus' uh, sort of interactions with John the Baptist and teaching a little bit about John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was pretty great. Uh, his birth was foretold by an angel just before the birth of Jesus was foretold by an angel. He's the cousin of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he was privileged uh, with a, a ministry of calling people to repentance in preparation for the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God. <clears throat> John the Baptist seems to have been uh, faithful and actually fearless in his ministry, uh, even calling Herod Antipas to repentance. Uh, Herod represented Roman rule in this region, Galilee, which is where Jesus was now manifesting and proclaiming his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so when John the Baptist preached something that Herod Antipas, this ruler, uh, this earthly ruler, didn't like to hear, Herod had John imprisoned, which is the background for our passage. So John the Baptist, the great prophet and faithful servant of the Lord, the instrument used by God to prepare the way for Jesus, is now languishing in a dungeon for the part he has played in the story of Jesus Christ. And John was shaken by that. John didn't understand that. He wrestled with doubts about Jesus because he to be honest, expected something different. Even the great John the Baptist has his problems with doubts. Uh, whether we're aware of it or not, uh, it's pretty common for us to live with some basic demands of God, some basic assumptions, some basic expectations. We think we understand who God should be and what God should be doing. Sometimes we even imagine that we've picked up these expectations from the scriptures themselves, from God himself. And then we wrestle with doubts and discouragement and frustration and even anger toward God because he hasn't satisfied our demands in our judgment. And a relationship with Jesus will reveal these things to us about ourselves. Apart from the work of the Spirit, uh, we would not receive such revelation well, but through the Spirit's work in us, we can come truly to hear Christ's good word to us and begin to accept it. And so we're going to pray for the Spirit's work now as we consider the Scripture. Let's, uh, let's pray, then we'll read it. Father, we pray that you would give us your Spirit. Give us ears to hear your word with faith as we consider what Jesus is saying to us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So why would John the Baptist send his disciples to ask that question of Jesus? Are you the one to come, uh, who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's whole life has been revolving around Jesus. Since before either of them were born, he has clearly understood the scriptures, the reality of the Messiah, the Christ who is coming from God, the proximity of the time for the Christ who's coming and for his revealing, uh, the kind of ministry the Messiah would come to do that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he's already identified Jesus specifically as this promised one. When Jesus came to him for baptism, he, he said to Jesus, why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. And He's already proclaimed Jesus is the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. He's already testified that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows who Jesus is. That he's the Christ, anointed by God to be the Savior and King of his people. He saw that anointing at at the baptism. So, why does John send his disciples to ask that question? It's because things don't seem to be going quite as well as he thought they would. Considering that the Savior and King of God's people had arrived, John had assumptions about what that should have meant, that the Savior and King had come. And he thought his assumptions were entirely biblical. He's only getting his assumptions from the Scriptures, right? His assumptions carried the weight of God's authority in his mind. So it was confusing to him when Jesus didn't perfectly match up with the picture he had in his head about who this Christ should be, who who he should be or what he should do when he came. There's an indication about this that's hinted uh, at in Jesus' answer to the question. Jesus answered John's disciples and said, go and tell John what you hear and see. And then he quotes various scriptures from the prophet Isaiah that are clearly fulfilled in his own ministry. 
literally fulfilled. So the blind receive their sight. That was talked about in Isaiah 29. And the lame walk, Isaiah 35. Lepers are cleansed. You can pick that up from Isaiah 53. Uh, The deaf hear, again, Isaiah 29 and 35. And the dead are raised up, Isaiah 26. And the poor have good news preached to them. That's chapter 61. So in his ministry, Jesus is literally fulfilling these promises of the prophets. Uh, commentary that I read uh, pointed out, though, the problem is all these passages in Isaiah are also shot through with prophecies of God's cataclysmic judgment on the enemies of his people. That the Christ will advance the kingdom of God and eradicate the opposition. Nothing will stand in his way. That was always a big expectation for the Christ, uh, that he would ultimately deliver his people even forcibly, I think they understood it that way, from the hostility that they faced. And there would be a clear demonstration of his unstoppable power on the level with the plagues that God sent upon Egypt when he delivered his people out of slavery there. So clear, so unstoppable, even the Roman, Roman emperor himself would have to be forced to bend the knee and submit to the Christ, the Messiah, the true king, the judgment of God and face his wrath. And so John believed that. He thought it was fairly straightforward from the scriptures. And he expected the ministry of the Christ to literally fulfill these promises too. Like he has literally fulfilled the ones right next to them in Isaiah about making the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And yet, here he is, John languishing in prison, suffering hostility and oppression and persecution and violence, even though the Savior and King of God's people had come into the world and he's in the neighborhood and he could do something about this. And that feels wrong. It doesn't make sense to him. And to be honest, John's situation uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us either. Uh, Jesus calls him a prophet. That's, that's a great honor, isn't it? Yes. And more than a prophet. The extraordinary, maybe unique, messenger who will pave the way for the Christ. So that's a reference uh, to this prophecy from Malachi. So at the close of the scriptures of the Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, Malachi had foretold the return of the great prophet Elijah himself. Uh, And Jesus says, here he is, John the Baptist. Not some weird sort of reincarnation version of Elijah. Elijah is in heaven, interacting with God. He's not somehow embodying this person, John the Baptist. But this is another prophet, but come in the spirit of Elijah. Come in the power of Elijah, bearing strong similarities in his ministry to the great Elijah. And everybody assumes. Oh, we know what that means. Elijah was a prophet who performed many great miracles. That's why he was so great. His story is a great story of success after success, demonstrating the power of God and the judgments of God on his enemies. He's the one who defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah all at once on Mount Carmel. And that's true, and it's an amazing story, and you should go home and read that story. Uh, it starts in 1 Kings 17, <clears throat> really, when, when Elijah 
prophesied that a drought would come on the land, and then that drought came, and it lasted for three years. And then in chapter 18, Elijah called all those 850 hostile prophets up to Mount Carmel for this showdown, and they were to prepare altars. This is the sort of the terms of the contest, so to speak. They're going to prepare altars, we're going to, and, and Elijah is going to prepare an altar, right? So they're going to make a, a sacrifice to their, their God. Uh, they're not to light the fire on the altar. They're to pray to their respective gods, and whichever one answers, that's the one true God. And the false prophets could go first. They could do whatever they wanted first, pick the best sacrifice if they wanted, whatever. <clears throat> they prepared their altar with its sacrifice, and there they were, hopping around, raving mad, cutting themselves, crying out, but no God answered them. For hours they were doing this, and no God answered them. And then it was Elijah's turn. He prepared his altar to the Lord with its sacrifice, and then he dug a trench around the altar, kind of like a moat. And then he had the people dump 12 jars of water, probably not small jars, uh, 12 giant jars of water on the sacrifice to saturate it, and the wood that was supposed to catch on fire until the water had filled the trench around the altar. So much water. And he called out to God to answer, to make himself known, to turn the hearts of the people back to him. And the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones of the altar and the dust of the ground and licked up the water in the trench. This is fire from God. And everybody praised the Lord, and Elijah then had all the false prophets killed, and he, then he said, rain is coming to end the drought. And a huge storm came, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Boom. Right? That's the kind of prophet Elijah is, the mic drop prophet. Right? That's the kind of ministry we expected to see in the life of John the Baptist. But Wait. There's more. Immediately after the incredible miracles Elijah participated in, that great victory, the evil king Ahab went home and he told his even more evil queen, Jezebel, about how Elijah had said and done some things they didn't like. And Jezebel sent a messenger with a threat to Elijah and the great prophet, the wonder worker, the instrument of the Lord, got scared and ran away. He was demoralized. The wind got sucked out of his sails. He got depressed, and he sulked about his plight. Audrey read about it in our Old Testament reading. <clears throat> Elijah thought that the judgment of God should have come down on all his enemies. Elijah thought, if God is using me like this, shouldn't he also save me from the hostility of evil Rulers. Elijah thought God's kingdom is advancing, obviously, but there are these rulers in the world still violently opposing the Lord, and that can't be right. Where's the cataclysmic judgment that's going to fall on these people? And you see it in our Old Testament reading in First Kings 19. Elijah would expect God to be in the whirlwind. He would expect God to be in the earthquake. He'd expect God to be in the fire. 
Because these kinds of impressive cataclysms always accompany the prophecies of God's judgment. This is what God's judgment's going to look like when the prophets write about it. Whirlwinds and earthquakes and fires. But God isn't in those things. He's not in those things. He's in the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard that, that low whisper, he recognized it. But he was still confused and upset because of his expectations. What he really wanted was the cataclysmic judgments over his enemies and deliverance from the hostility for himself. He was upset at God for not satisfying his unspoken assumptions, his demands. But God was patient and gentle with him throughout. That's the Elijah-style ministry that we see in the life of John the Baptist. He's great. He's a big deal. He gets to participate in what God is doing. He's still got big problems with his faith. Like Elijah, John faithfully said things the rulers didn't want to hear, while Elijah was just faced with a threatening message from uh, the evil ruler lady. Um, John the Baptist was imprisoned, and he would eventually be beheaded by the evil ruler lady. And that's not how it's supposed to work, is it? How does that fulfill this incredible prophetic ministry? How does facing persecution, suffering, and death prepare the way for the Lord? These aren't the kind of things we want to hear if we assume that God being for us means that he'll wipe out our enemies and spare us any suffering. If what you want most from a Savior is a life that's free of suffering, free of conflict, then the stories of Elijah and John the Baptist will depress you. And Jesus is going to offend you. Uh, scandalize you. That's what that word is in verse 6. It'll be a stumbling block to you. Because he isn't what you wanted. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can hear how the apparently faltering life of John the Baptist through persecution and suffering and how that prepares the way of the Lord through, through his suffering at the hands of earthly authorities. <clears throat> Jesus is the Savior and King of God's kingdom. But if we let him define those terms for us instead of just our own assumptions about what that means, then we'll discover that it means the cross for Jesus. We'll discover that it means he suffers the cataclysmic judgment that the enemies of God deserved. And we'll discover that the world is violently opposed to his kingdom, to the king himself, and to his ways of living with God. Those who belong to him in his kingdom will suffer the same violence. Let him who has ears to hear accept this. Jesus walked that same way and leads us in that same way. So, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me, he says. How can we consider it a blessing? How can we consider it divine happiness? to receive this kind of Savior from God, the crucified Savior. All of this is difficult, even for great prophets like Elijah or John the Baptist. In fact, being able to accept and embrace all of this about Jesus Christ uh, is impossible for those who have not been spiritually reborn to enter into his kingdom. 
Jesus talks about that when he says uh, in verse 11, among those born of women, there's none greater than John. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom is greater. So on the one hand, there's natural biological birth that happens to everybody. Every sinner, every unbeliever is born into the world of rebellion against God in this way, born of women. On the other hand, there's a second birth. There's being born of the Spirit, which brings the people of Christ into his kingdom, which means they will have ears to hear his voice with faith. Jesus talks about this second birth more explicitly in John 3, in his uh, conversation with Nicodemus there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, so with emphasis, unless one is born of water, that's the natural birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this theological term for this second birth, the birth of the Holy Spirit, is regeneration. The first generation, the first birth, only produces people who make their demands of God but will never be satisfied by him because they have a prior prejudice against him. So that's what he says in verse 16 and following. To what shall I compare this generation, those who are only born of the natural birth, not the supernatural, not born again of the spirit. To what shall I compare this generation? <clears throat> it's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You wanted A, you got B, so you weren't satisfied. Then A came along, you said you wanted B, so that you could continue to complain and be dissatisfied. Whatever you get, you spin to say that it's not what you wanted because you are predisposed to be dissatisfied with God. If you only belong to this generation, this natural generation, that it's impossible for you to accept who Jesus is, to accept the kind of king that he is, to embrace the ways of his kingdom, it's impossible because you're dead set against God. But if you've been regenerated, born again of the Spirit, even if you're the least in his kingdom, you'll hear the works that he has done and you'll know who he is. You'll hear the words of Christ and you'll believe. You will not turn away from him because he's offended you or scandalized you. You'll be blessed. You'll be divinely happy to belong to his kingdom, even though it's a kingdom that suffers violent opposition in this world. If you've been given ears to hear spiritually, you'll be willing to accept what Jesus has to say to you about what life in his kingdom will look like. If you've been given ears to hear, yes, you might still struggle with confusion and doubts, but you'll let Jesus tell you who he is and how he's at work. And even his hard words will be to you an opportunity to lean into the relationship. If you've been given ears to hear, you'll listen to his call to examine your unspoken assumptions. Examine the demands you make of God. Even the ones you thought you'd picked up from him. If you've been given ears to hear, you'll recognize God in the unrecognizable places, in the 
inaudible sound of the low whisper in the man dying on the tree in your own suffering for his sake. It's understandable that you'd want peace in God's kingdom and freedom from the fear of persecution. Don't worry or despair that you might still have doubts about Jesus. Even Elijah and John the Baptist struggled with their doubts. But if you have ears to hear, then hear Jesus out. Hear him, hear him out. Let his word determine how you interpret your circumstances. Rather than judging him by your circumstances because your expectations were more important to you than what he says. Don't doubt who he is because violent opposition to his kingdom is a reality. It was a reality for him. It's a reality for the king himself. And it's an opportunity for us to follow in the king's steps and to know him, our older brother, the king, to know him more deeply. If you really listen to Jesus, you'll probably hear some things you don't like. Can you accept that? His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. And that ultimately is good news for those who have been given ears to hear it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can always turn to the gospel to hear what you are saying to us through your beloved son. We pray that the reality of your Son and his kingdom would shape our lives, that you would help us by your grace to hear your voice above all other voices, even the voices of our own expectations, to hear your voice for the sake of our blessed life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, let's stand and confess our faith together using Colossians chapter 1.